because there'll be times where I was kind of think, well, does anyone really want to hear this? I, I'll get, get all negative, and then I'll think, well, I don't know if I should put this in, and I'm not sure if I should be doing this. And then Lowell will give me a pep talk and uh, <laughs> yeah. give me reasons why I should carry on, and which is really I'm very grateful for, and it, it invigorates me. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Welcome to Curious Creatures. We have a very special guest this evening. Please, everybody, welcome Mr. Kevin Haskins. I think you may know Kevin from Bauhaus. You may know Kevin from Love and Rockets. You may know Kevin from Tones on Tail. Is this, are there any I'm missing, Kevin? Well, we did this little uh, thing called Pop Tone. That's oh, right. yes, yes. Which somebody brought up the other day, so I guess that should be included. Yes. Let's not leave anything out. Where was your kind of stomping ground, Kevin? What, what was the the early, was Bauhaus the first band for you? No, no, I was in maybe like four or five bands prior to that. Right. But I, my first band was a covers band, and we played working men's clubs and American Air Force bases were amazing. They were like amazing because of the facilities and. Uh, but yeah. usually it was like really horrible pubs and working men's clubs. And, so the, 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 you know, the Air Force bases, the, they, they, yeah. they lifted the bar high and then it was all downhill. Yeah. But that was really kind of paying your dues and and just learning all those, you know, it was like Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Status Quo and maybe Led Zeppelin song, just all... What was ever in the charts, we would, you know, but you, you know, still draw on that, you know, throughout my career, those, maybe a fill or something from a, you know, Beatles song or whatever. They, they don't leave you, do they? They don't go away. No, no. So that was, you know, very beneficial in lots of ways. Um, <clears throat> and then, I don't, there was like about four bands after that. One was a punk band called The Submerged Tenth. And we did like two shows, I think. Yeah, that, um, that was enough, right? It, yeah, all the other like bands in between were just playing in pubs in Northampton mainly. Uh, we didn't really go further afield, um, and we, you know, started with with Bauhaus in pubs. Yeah, in Northampton and Wellingborough. And, did you have a regular that. audience then? Did you have people coming to? You know, was the audience your following? Not, not for the first. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the first ten or twelve gigs, we didn't really have a following. You, you know, We're, like, well, that's not that. That's not bad. Twelve gigs without a following. <laughs> we were so desperate to play. Uh, when my girlfriend got us a gig at, I think it was Urchester. Um, maybe it was a cricket or rugby club. Sunday lunchtime, like where all the families come and they have Sunday lunch, 
Can you imagine yeah. anything in, as in Congress no. as Powerhouse? No, because they're, they're not really serious music appreciators, are they, don't they? <laughs> they're not really there for the music. <laughs> they're for uh, the bingo and the, and the food yeah. and the beer. Yeah. Yeah. We did a couple of Sunday lunchtime things as well with, um, what's that guy? Neil Gaiman. You know, he was he was not a famous uh, writer at that point. He had a band, you know, and so really he would do all these costume remember. changes, you know, on stage. He was like, it was like Queen. It was like Freddie Mercury, you know, and then, then but he always said he gave up because, you know, the only other band in the town was secure and he wasn't going to, you know. It wasn't going to get better than, than than we were getting, so that was that was good, you know. But I mean, it's funny that kind of routine was definitely, um, you know, it, it it's where you 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 pay your dues and you test your metal and and all the rest of it, you know. So it's great. Yeah. I look I look back on those days fondly, you know. At the time, most of it was like you know, really horrible, but um, it, I look back on it fondly. Yeah, yeah, I do. I remember you telling me a story about Iggy Pop in the early days of Bauhaus when you met him uh, as the band. And I wonder if you'd like to reiterate that one because it was a very interesting story. Well, um, <clears throat> did you ever stay in the uh, Iroquois Hotel in Manhattan? I never did, but the band the band did. I remember it's Roach Motel or Roach Hotel. It's where everybody, all the bands were put in this hotel, and it was yeah, it was Cockroach Central. And uh, we checked in, and there was a little kind of uh, entryway to a bar off the lobby. And while we were being checked in, I went and poked my head around the corner. And there, it was like all smoky, and there was this old guy crooning that had probably been there for 50 years. He was really, he was ancient. And um, I just thought, it's just brilliant. Just the, the whole, this, you know, crumbling old hotel and this crumbling old crooner. And, and as, as my eyes adjusted to the dark nurse in the bar, I, I saw this figure sitting at the end of the bar, and I was like, it's Iggy Pop, and I, was like, I can't believe it. So I ran, you know, to the front desk and said, "Guys, Iggy Pop's sitting at the bar." And they, they thought I was winding them up. They were like, "Get out of here!" And I'm like, "No, no." So, you know, they followed me, and, and we we all decided we needed a, to have a drink. Of course, of course. So sat at the bar and ordered some drinks, and um, you know, struck up a conversation with Iggy, and uh, and Peter was kind of being. It was kind of like acting around a bit, like being very kind of gregarious and, uh, uh, you know, the rest of us were kind of in awe and, you know, in reverence and just kind of just trying to, wow, we, we, is this really happening? And, you know, we had a conversation and we told him that we were playing, uh, you know, at this club and this club. And he said, well, I can't come to, I think Dance Tear was the first one and then there was another one a week later and he said yeah I, I can make probably make the you know the one in a week and uh, and uh, Peter was still kind of like in his face like that you're some fresh kid he said to him well Peter said to Iggy you're some fresh face kid 
no, Iggy said to Peter, you're you're some fresh kid, wow. you know, fresh-faced kid or something. He was kind of, I think at one point he was t- tickling Iggy or something, you know, he was, I think he was, I don't think he knew what, how to, you know, how to behave in that situation. And um, so anyway, that night, first night in New York ever. So we're really excited. We're young, like, let's go, go to the clubs and go to dance too again. And Danny just wouldn't go. And we're like, come on, Danny. He's like, no, no, I'm just going to have a quiet night in. We're like, can't believe you're not coming out. But anyway, <clears throat> we went out. And so we we had a great time. And we rolled in, at, yeah. you know, probably like three or four in the morning. And we've all been staying in the same room. There was with a tour, like there was five beds in this. It was horrible. And when you put the light on, all the cockroaches just, you know, they were on the beds and the they all scuttle away really fast into a dark corner. Oh, it's horrible. And um, and we're like, Danny, you really missed out. You know, it was great tonight, and we're telling him about, you know, and he was going, yeah, mm, mm, yeah. So after we'd finished, he, we said, what, what did you get up to? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I um, I went down to the bar. Uh, I thought I'd have a drink. And I went in the bar and there was Iggy Park, Mick Ronson, Glenn Matlock, and this gorgeous model, female model. And so he said, and we were just like, what? You know, he's completely trumped us, you know. And uh, so he said, yeah, I just, I sat at the bar and of course, you know, I kept looking over at them. So the, this model, gorgeous model came over and said, hey, um, what, what, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? It's like, Dan, 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 Daniel. And he said, yeah, we noticed you've been like looking over it. Do you want to come and join us? And he's like, yeah, okay, okay. So we went and joined them. And um, so he's, you know, I'm now having a drink, you know, with yeah. this rock and roll royalty and and then uh they say hey kid let's we're going to go up to the room do you want to hear um was it iggy's i think iggy album that ronson had produced does that make sense with matlock playing bass it would be wouldn't it yeah so uh he's like yeah yeah so they get in the elevator and in the elevator halfway up then matlock starts to make fun of daniel's makeup Uh uh-huh and Iggy reprimands Glenn. He's like, don't make fun of him. He's a cool kid. He's a cool kid. So they go in the room and they have this assassin, put it on. And and all the time, Iggy's like putting down Ronson's production work and, and vice versa. And just like, like, oh my God. Yeah. Can we just skip this track? That your vocals, like, like, yeah, I couldn't. And they were just like having fun with each other. And then they were like, so, do you have any records out? And we just brought out Terror Couple Kill Colonel. And Danny said, yeah, I've got a copy. We brought some copies with me. He's like, go and get it, kid, go and get it. So he ran to his room, got the, they put it on and and uh, they would said that they really liked it. And like, we've got to come and see you guys, uh, you know. And then they, and they say, okay, Daniel, it's time for you to leave because we're going to be doing some things that a young kid like you shouldn't be privy to wow. but it's been great hanging out with you and and so that was you know i don't know what they were going to get up to wow but you have to use your imagination i suppose
so we're playing the gig that was a week later and we're like few numbers in and I'd see this guy heckling Peter <laughs> and I'm trying to look past Peter and he's really, you know, giving it some and Peter's giving it back and like poking the mic stand in his direction and, and there's his repartee going on and I look around Peter and it's Iggy and he's like, come on, show me what you got. And, and, uh, after we finished the set, he came backstage, and I, I brought this Canon camera um, on Times Square. So it's probably one of the first photos I took with it was Iggy and Peter backstage, and um, we hung out for a bit. And then all I can remember is that Iggy says, "I'm, I'm going to this, I'm going to this crazy, dangerous uh, S&M." club that's like a cavern you guys come on let's go come on i've got a car outside and he he had had a car waiting the whole gig he said to the <laughs> he told us that you know he told the driver i'll just be five minutes but he said you guys are so great i just just whatever i you know left him so he must have wrapped up a sizable bill there you know um but we were all, all a little bit too scared to um take his it sounded very scary you know there was a place called the Anvil in New York City. How do you know? How do you know the names of these? Well, uh, it, ca- it came up in, in something I was reading, and I thought I've been there. It was one of those, like <laughs> you know, it's probably uh, its myth has escalated over the passage of time, mm. but it was um, down in a sort of dank cellar. And the smell was usual. It was a bit like right. being at right. early days in heaven um, under the arches in Charing Cross. The, the, around that time, I think the the big, uh, um, mm-hmm. if you like, the drug of choice would have been amyl nitrate pe- poppers, which smelled a little bit like, hmm, let me see, urine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so. It, it's just like, yeah, it's like testosterone gone mad. The, the amyl nitrate. <clears throat> I, 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 I know very well you do. what that smells it- like. And I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you why when you, when you finish. Oh, it's a bit, like, a bit sweaty. And I just remember going down, as usual, to say the crowd would be me, Susie, and her friend who was, well, we thought he was a friend, but I think he was actually hitting on her. And I think we had, did we have a guitarist with us? One of our guitarists would have been there. Yeah, one of, one of the Johns was <laughs> One of the Johns. One of the Johns. <laughs> and this chap who was, I don't know, it was like suddenly there was a kind of a, 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 a kind of realisation that there was a female presence in this men's only uh, club below ground, right. you know, with little right. sort of stained kind of... Um, they were not even um, projection screens. They were like fabric from from a you know a sheet, uh, hanging up like sails around this basement. Projection of unmentionable things. And uh, the next thing we hear, I think it's somebody's like going, "Oi, he bit me!" And it was like this guitarist. Or maybe I'm I'm rolling two stories into one. But it was like we hightailed it out because. We'd heard stories of people being found locked up in cupboards, you know, weeks after the, you know, the clean the cleaners found somebody, you know, and they're like, oh, they had a really oh bad goodness. night. They had a good night that oh. one, wasn't it? Look, he's still here. <laughs> Gosh. Oh yeah. 
I feel like I've I've lived a very um, uh, sheltered existence listening to you two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it was our uh, second European tour, and Peter Kent from 4AD decided to tour manage, uh, probably just to get out of the house. So he was driving the van, and so Daniel and Peter had brought a little jar of poppers. Ah. Um, and they were just like obsessed with it and just thought it was, you know, just thought it was kind of funny and kind of crazy. And they're always like running around with it and not really, you know, getting up, not really kind of imbibing too much of it. But anyway, this one night we were driving, I think we were driving after a gig during the night to the next, I think it was a hectic. It's a very long drive, so it was like driving for the night. So it was probably like two or three in the morning, and I'd fallen asleep. And unbeknownst to me, they were behind me, and they kept putting the little vial of poppers underneath my nose. And I'd be going, (laughs) like this. And then they'd be cracking up laughing at my reactions. And and then I'd settle down again, and then do it again. And I'd go, and they'd be, they thought this was hilarious, hilarious. And um, and then the th- I don't know how many times it were. The last time they did it, um, it was right under my nose, and the the van went over a big bump in the road, and it slipped out of their hand, and it landed, and it just poured on my t-shirt, <laughs> soaked in, like it was in my lap. My all my clothes were soaked in it, and I I woke up like. And just like scream, like what? like you know, from a deep sleep into like a full-on amyl nitrate, you know, overdose. And it was so pungent that the uh, Peter Kent w- was under the influence of it, and he was swerving. And I was like, "Stop! Stop! Stop the van!" And he came to a halt, and I flew the, put the door open, and I just ran into this field. <laughs> And I kept running, and I thought, if I can get in the middle of this big field, then I'll have enough air around me to. But you know, I didn't think, you know, take take your t-shirt off. The man with the burning t-shirt runs and runs, and people are just going, "Drop down, take it off." I had a similar experience with. Um with with Robert one night, I think, in the first album we were recording. I fell asleep again. It's always when you fall asleep, the bastards are going to do dangerous, something to you. Dangerous move, I found. Dangerous, Never fall yeah. asleep. I used to stay awake all night just for that reason. Right. Yeah. So so I fell asleep in the studio, in Morgan's studios, and we, we you know, back then it was tape, right? So they have a little bottle of um, isopropyl alcohol, you know, to clean the tape heads. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. And of course, because Robert had, had discovered that you can set this stuff on fire, right? So I'm asleep, and I wake up to find him, and it might have been Mickey D as well. I don't know. We were the, the three of us were in there getting up. There was hijinks. Anyway, I fell asleep late night in the studio, and I woke up to find Bob trying to set my shoes on fire as as I'm sitting there. So of course, I did the first thing that you would do. I kicked it as hard as I could, and this yeah. 
fireball of isopropyl engulfed the studio for about two milliseconds. You know? Wow. And, well, I'd, I'd lost my eyebrows. Wow. You know, they were gone. They were like singed. Really? Yeah, yeah. Little bits of them wow. singed and bits of hair and that. And we just all looked at each other and like, that was like a pretty stupid <laughs> idea, right? Let's never do that again. That's the thought that crossed everybody's <laughs> mind, you know? So after that, it was safe. <laughs> That with Mike Hedges, we had the idea to wouldn't it be great if we do a, a like this film where the studio takes possession of everybody and and bad things happen, you know, and some everybody gets bumped up. It was a great premise for a film. Yeah, well, Hedges, Hedges was there when when that happened. Hedges of course, was there he was. When the, he was the instigator of all this stuff. Probably the yeah, you know the uh, the IPA fireball. He was definitely there for that. Ah. Oh. Happy days. Ah, well, the, the lives we have led. Um, I have I have one more uh, Iggy Pop story, and it, it features the Iroquois. It features uh, my lead singer, because I had one too, uh, Susie Sue. And uh, she was over on probably uh, some kind of a promotional trip with uh, the band's then manager, Neil Stevenson. And they were staying at the Iroquois. And apparently Iggy walked in having heard of uh, Suze's arrival and they were chatting and it was like, and I, well, maybe he wasn't chatting. Maybe it was just that Iggy walked up and took out a room key and threw it on the low table where Susie was sitting as like, there's the key. There's the number. <laughs> That's where I'll be, babe. Wow. <laughs> And the rest, I suppose, we'll have to wait until the book comes out. Right, exactly. Which leads me very, very nicely into... Lowell's written a wonderful... You were very positive and, and, and very um, complimentary about Lowell's uh, Cured, Kevin. Yes, you were. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, you've been dipping in and out of it. I, I, too, have a copy. Mine's signed. I got Lol to sign it. Well, I didn't actually. He wasn't looking. He, he'd fallen asleep and I got his hand to yeah, move. Right, for put it me. on top of it, yeah. <laughs> to my best buddy in the world. <laughs> yeah, I read Lowell's book and really enjoyed it. And then I'm also working on a memoir. Mm. And occasionally I've spoken to Lowell and he's given me... Because there'll be times where I was kind of think, well... Does anyone really want to hear this? I'll get all negative, and then I think, well, I don't know if I should put this in, and I'm not sure if I should be doing this. And then Lowell will give me a pep talk and uh, <laughs> yeah. give me reasons why I should carry on, and which is really I'm very grateful for, and it, it invigorates me. And then I, you know, occasionally pick up his book when I'm like just a kind of the inspiration, really, and just kind of it's like a, a you know, a, a high bar to you know measure what i'm doing against you know and i, I wow. also joy division's drummer steve steven steven morris yeah. steven morris yeah. morris yeah i've also enjoyed his his books i i've been reading yeah i've been reading steven's uh, book as well the first one i've been reading the first one it, it's very good it's very yeah. good i i met him um i, I wanted to meet uh, i met hooky 
when we played um, Hacienda, and he was, I was very impressed because he was helping our crew load our gear in. He was very hands-on. Wow. Um, so I'd met him briefly. Good old hockey. Yeah, and then I wanted to meet the rest of the guys, and I missed them the first time I played at Coachella, but the second time, I managed to get backstage before they'd taken off, and and I met Stephen, and I <clears throat> he was a big influence on my drumming, and he had a snare drum, and of course I had to rush out and get a snare drum, right? Because I saw him on So It Goes, was that that was it? Yes. And he was like, "What yes, is that? Ch- that ch- this thing makes a ch- ch- sound." Yeah. But I, I, anyway, I said, "I, I just want to thank you because you're actually quite a big influence." on my drumming and he and he said oh no no stop don't 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 give me I'm, I'm sorry i just i get really uncomfortable when people give me compliments and i just thought oh what a sweetheart you know he's so humble and, i know um so down to earth and sweet so i really enjoyed just our little meeting i i i met i sat with Stephen for about an hour. I don't think he wanted me to be there for an hour, but I, <laughs> I we, we, we had adjoining dressing rooms as with John Grant and um, New Order were closing the Blue Dot Festival just outside Manchester, only a few, just before lockdown, three years ago. And uh, I walked in, there was only Stephen there out of the band, and he doesn't live very far. Well, none of the band do live very far from the location. It's right where Jodrell Bank is, the big uh, parabolic. Um, you know, reflector for receiving signals and satellite information, whatever, and, and looking at the stars. And uh, Stephen was in there saying, and obviously he was thinking about something. There was a conundrum going on. I'd never really spoken to him before, but I was just kind of making, you know, interfering, you know, interrupting. <laughs> Hi, Stephen, how are you doing? Eh? <laughs> Isn't it strange to meet after all these years? And he was, I said, what are you up to? And he, he's saying, well, they've left me to figure out how to light it. I'm going, light what? Well, the Jodrell Bank parabolic <laughs> dish. Because you know, we're going to try and feature it as part of the, the light show this evening. And, um, and I'm just thinking, this is not a job for a, job for a drummer. You know, there's, <laughs> there are, there's limitations to what we're supposed to be doing. But, but give a drummer a, a, drummer a job. And it's like a dog and a bone, isn't it? You know, we we could do uh, most things. People don't realize we could do most things. You know, hidden talents. Anyway, so anybody who saw that show, it Stephen was out there in the afternoon with his pencil and paper, <laughs> quadratalizing and putting like you know the uh, the theory and the formula to work to so get the lights in the right angle to catch the parabolic reflector at the right moment in Blue Monday when it <laughs> most when it most mattered. Uh, I was talking. I was talking to uh, talking to people concerning uh, my own memoir. Yes, which is um, I, I, I and I pulled up this piece, and it was dated November two thousand fifteen. Wow! And wow. I'm thinking I have been doing this for rather a long time. These little bits, and this was called the intro. So, the, <laughs> okay. and I don't think it will be the intro, but it's uh, it was almost the outro of me from the group. You know. And like you, I, I've struggled many times with, you know, how 
why and uh, what what's it about why uh, how much can one say um how much uh, are if you like it's like having um censorship sort of installed right. somewhere right. In, in in one's thoughts as if there's some kind of um for me i suppose it's post relationship and post band uh, the people i spent most time with and i'm um still very loyal in many ways that because when you're in a band it demands 110 to 150% loyalty right right one one for all and all for one right all yeah. for one absolutely musketeers yeah. never say never um but there is comes a point when as with maybe a, a you know you're lucky if you can keep the relationship going a few years if you keep it going over a decade or so um it's very much a, a way of thinking that you adopt and it kind of comes in before your own thinking and the process of if you like post relationship and post band is actually looking for your own voice again without that filter without right. that kind of uh, all protection filter that you have when you're talking to the press and you're talking to TV and you kind of have a kind of defense mechanism mm. Right. You, you're, right. you're being careful of what you say yeah. and to whom you say it right. and uh, yeah. that's been the hardest thing for me and, and I'm hoping I've with the help of LOL as, as, of course because LOL has been through this process and then the people who I've met who have also by reading lots of uh, biography lots of uh, different attempts in different ways mm. how you do find your own voice and find out that that's a voice that I need to hear Yes. And that's my really my modus operandi. If it would be, I need to hear that voice, and I need to hear it from me, and then I, I would love to see it written down, if even if nobody else does, to um, to kind of claim back, you know, my role and 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 my journey. Really, if I get scared and get fearful of what what are people going to say, uh, uh, is 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 it even my place to 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 reveal something? I say, as Lol said in the beginning of your book, Lol, this is your version of events. Yeah, in, in the author's note, I think I said something like, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing myself now, um, you know, a, a memoir and a biography, two different things, you know, because you might think they're the same, but a memoir's like, hey, this is what I remember. And you might have heard that things went down a different way, but this is my truth. This is my version. And this is what I know. And you put it very eloquently there. Budgie, it's it's absolutely the reason for doing it is to find your own voice, to claim your your own uh, self back, because all of us lost ourselves in in the machinations and the development and the birth of the bands we're in, and that's fine because that's what you have to do at some point. You have to merge as one unit to go forward and, mm. and be bigger than the whole. You know, the sum of the parts is bigger than the whole, right? And that's what happened for all of us. But then at some point in your life, you know, you have to say, okay, well, yeah, I have this part of it, which is me, and I need to reveal it, and I need for people to see it, and I need for them to know that this is, you know, not just, you know, uh, an adjunct to some other situation this is the full person and it's very scary 
Mm. Very scary when you first approach it. But it's absolutely, and this is, you know, this is my own personal opinion, but for me, it's been absolutely the best thing I ever did in the latter half of my life, for sure, for myself. You know, it, it's uh, mm-hmm. brought me a lot of, a lot of um, peace and, and a lot of uh, understanding about my own life and what happened and how it happened. And uh, that's not a bad thing for anybody, you know. I, w- I would wish that for anybody. So, you know. When did you feel that, when, you know, what point was it after the book was released? Or was there a, a, a defining moment there? Like, yeah. Once it was out there to the world, did you then feel... How did you feel? Like, was it different or? It was a very good question. I think actually when I really felt it very, very strongly is uh, part of the process of writing a book that you'll both go through, which is when you finish the manuscript, you finish your typing and you and you give it to the, the copy editor or whatever, and it comes back very nicely set and placed and it looks like a bloody book. When it starts to look like a book that you've read and you go, oh my God, this is my book. That's when it hits you. you know? and is then, that the yeah. point when there's a, there's a few paragraphs and chapters missing? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had a couple of things that were taken out and uh, a couple of things the lawyers thought had to come out. But, you know, um, I think I think it's like, it's like making a record. It's like, you know, like I always said to people, I knew the record that we'd made was good when I heard it. And for the first, you know, 10 seconds of it, I was listening to it. And I thought, who's that? That sounds good. Oh, that's us, you know? And and I've become kind of a little detached from it. The same thing with the book. When you, you read it and you look at it and you go, this is a book. And it's good. I like it. But it's, you know, it's your experience. Once you do that, that's when it becomes real because all the time, you know, I mean, I'm doing it right now. I'm writing, you know, a few hours a day and I just sat there writing and it's not, um, it's not real yet. You know, it's, it's just an idea in my head and on, on the computer screen, but, um, it will be real and it will be out there and it will have a picture of me on the back and a picture of something else on the front or whatever. And, uh, that's when, you know, it's real, you know, but when, when you get the first draft back and, and a, and a little bit edited, you know, to to make it look like like well, just like it's typeset properly for a book. That's when that's when it feels real. Right. How should we take it from where we are? Can we come back at some point, Kevin, and talk about where you you where you are now? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com 
And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.